following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Full house today. Wow. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being here. I would love to think that I could get to all of you and say hi and personally introduce myself, but that's a pipe dream at this point, so... Uh, you want to stick around after the service, I would love to meet you. If not, please meet anybody sitting around you. They're just as good, if not better. So, actually, they are just better. We're going to read verses 14 to 29, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. So, if you will, please look at Matthew 9, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is always powerful. It is always good. It is, it is always able to reveal our own <laughs> desperate need of you in ways that perhaps we couldn't even envision at the time we first start to study. I'm thankful for this passage today and how you've used it in my own heart, and I just come now and confess my inability to preach it adequately. I, I cannot speak these words to these people in a way that will open their eyes or change their hearts. That is your work, Spirit. You do this, not, not man. And so I beg and I plead with you this morning, Father, that you will open all of our hearts to understand and open our eyes to see how much we depend on ourselves, but how truly incapable we are of anything. Make us a people that is dependent on you, we ask. And so help us to see your word this morning. Help us to understand it. Use this time, I ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to begin this morning by being... Um, a little bit nostalgic for a bit. How many of you loved Sesame Street as children? Or as parents who watch, let your children watch it, okay? Don't be ashamed. We loved it. 
I was uh, remembering a particular segment that used to occur uh, here and there throughout uh, the years. I don't know if they still do it or not. I haven't. My children are past Sesame Street years now, so I'm sort of lost in the to, uh, as to what they currently do. But do you remember when they used to play that little game called One of These Things is Not Like the Other? One of these things is not like the Okay. I was going to sing it, actually. I had thought about it. I even practiced it. And you're all welcome. Uh, like, I mean, you, you would see the scene, Big Bird would be standing there, and he would have uh, four bowls of, of bird seed in front of him. Three would be really small, one would be big. And the game was, well, one of these things is not like the other. Can you figure it out before the end of the song? And, and as I was studying in Mark this week, I, I wasn't looking for an introduction necessarily. I wasn't looking for something to get your attention. I'm, I'm literally just sitting there reading and studying Mark, and this is the song that's like in the back of my head as I'm studying. And I want to show you why that was, so I thought we would play a game to begin this morning. We're going to play a game. One of these things is not like the other. I'm going to give you one practice round just to get ready because some of you aren't, you know, still early for you on a weekend. So give you one practice round and then we'll do one real round and I will show you what I'm talking about here in Mark. But let's begin with a practice round. Round one, one of these things is not like the other regarding things you might expect to see at the sledding hill. Is it A? Is it B? Is it C, or could it possibly be D? So, so if you said D, you're correct. Very good. Excellent. It's, uh, it was February, right? We had that snow, and the kids really wanted to go sledding. And so, you know, in Virginia Beach, we're known for our hilly terrain, and so there wasn't a whole lot of options to go to, and, and the only place that was around our area is that little mound of dirt behind Chick-fil-A up on General Booth. You know what I'm talking about? That place is swamped when it snows. I mean, swamped with people. And so we went out there, and I'm sitting in the car because I'm one of those bad parents who, like, takes their kids to the sledding hill and kicks them out and stays in the warm car. <laughs> the Pedigoses were there. The De Leons were both there. They're out with their children enjoying the snow. I'm sitting in the car reading. People are coming and going, I'm watching this, and this truck pulls up behind me, and like 12 kids get out of this truck. I mean, it's like a clown car, and the, they, none of them have anything in their hands, no sleds, and they all just go running up the hill. So I'm watching this, and the dad gets out, and he goes into the back of the truck, and this is what he, he pulls out as an air mattress. And I'm thinking, I don't think that's going to work. But he walks up to the hill, and he's there for a moment, and he comes back by himself, and I'm like, what's he doing now? He's getting a second air mattress. He had two in the truck. So I don't know how that worked for him, but there you go. Uh, very good. You got your first one right. That was the practice round. Here's your, here's your real round, okay? One of these things is not like the other regarding exorcism stories in Mark, okay? That's our, that's our real category today. Exorcism stories in Mark. Is it A, Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. This is the story where Jesus, in the very beginning of his ministry, public ministry, he's in a synagogue one Saturday morning, and they are uh, teaching, and there's a guy sitting in the synagogue with, with a demon, and so Jesus casts out the demon. Remember that story for the few of you who were here back in Mark 1? Uh, is it B, the story in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20? This is when Jesus crosses the sea of Galilee, and he goes to the land of the Gerasenes, and there's a demoniac there, a guy who's got a legion of demons inside of him. He's crazy. They've tried to tame him in the past. No one could. He breaks chains. He's, he's lives, he lives among the tombs. Jesus casts out the demon. The guy's in his right mind. Great. End of story. Is it C, Mark chapter 7, 
verses 24 to 30. This is the Syrophoenician woman, the Gentile woman who comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, please help my my daughter. She has a, a demon. Will you cast it out? And Jesus says a very shocking thing back to her. He says, I would never take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. Remember that? But she then makes a statement of amazing faith. Faith, Jesus says, that he hadn't even seen in Israel. And he says, well, yes, but even the the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off the table. And Jesus, he commends her, he heals her child. Or is it possibly, since I haven't pointed out anything different in those other three stories in the past, could it possibly be D, Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29, our passage for today? Go out on a limb and take a guess. Which one's the right answer? Oh, don't say A. Is that you, Jordan? Who was that? Yes, D is the correct answer. Very good. This passage we're in this morning is actually the fourth and final detailed exorcism story in Mark. And notice that I said detailed story because there are other references to exorcisms in Mark's gospel where Jesus goes to a town and it'll say something like he healed the sick and he cast out many demons, that kind of thing. But in terms of, of detailed stories, in terms of stories where there's actually some content, there's some, some story, there's some context given, there's only four in Mark's gospel, and this is the last of them. The first three are all fairly similar. I mean, each one is unique in terms of who he's dealing with and what's going on in the stories, but, but there's a lot of, uh, of, of overlap in terms of their larger purpose, namely that in those first three stories, you learn a lot about Jesus himself. It's showing you something about his power, about his authority, about his kindness, his mercy, his grace, etc. You learn a lot about Jesus. But, but this fourth story is not like the others, right? I mean, it's, it's pretty different. Even though it has some similar characteristics with the other three stories, it's different in two really humongous ways. Number one, this exorcism story doesn't teach us anything about Jesus. Nothing. You say, well, why is it here then if it doesn't teach us anything about Jesus? Well, well, I mean, just think about this logically for a moment. Why, why would it need to? If you're not convinced by now that Jesus has power and authority over the, the world of evil, that he can cast out demons and do all this stuff, if you haven't been convinced by this point in Mark's gospel, do you really think one more story is going to do it? No. So, so that's clearly not Mark's point. There's something else going on here, something he wants to show us in this particular story. We'll see that in a few moments. Number two, in this exorcism story, is the second reason it's different. The exorcism itself doesn't even really matter. And I know that seems kind of strange because we're like, well, why do we call it an exorcism story then? I mean, if it's, the exorcism doesn't really matter, then what's going on here? Well, Understand that in this particular case, the exorcism is merely a means to an end. You could have probably replaced the same scene with a couple of other situations that may have occurred or could have occurred in, in, in terms of what Jesus is dealing with here, and it would have gotten us to the same end, but for whatever reason, it's the account of an exorcism that is used. And so while we're going to look at the exorcism, I don't really care about the exorcism because it's not the main point. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, it's just a means to an end. We'll see what that end is in a moment. This is why I'm saying that this story is very different. It's not like the others. And so to help us understand this correctly, what we're going to do is to employ a, a, a technique I've used as we've worked through some of the other stories here in Mark's gospel in the past. We're going to walk through the story two times. We're going to make an initial first kind of quick pass just to make sure that we understand the the basic face value components of what's going on as 
Mark is unfolding the scene for us. We want to make sure at least we understand the details. And then when we've done that, we're going to walk through it a second time, this time stopping to focus on some of the larger issues that Mark is trying to bring to light along the way. Okay, does that make sense? When we get done, we'll, we'll put it all together, apply it to us. So that's, that's the plan. Let's get started. Let's just do a quick walkthrough here just to get our bearings in the story. And I'm going to break this uh, scene into four different segments because I think it'll help us at least get some framework in which to think about what's happening. First of all, first segment is what I'm calling the situation, verses 14 to 18. I'm going to present this one a little out of order just because I think it'll make it clearer for us, but it's pretty straightforward. While Jesus and the three disciples were up on the mountaintop, transfiguration story, we just spent two weeks looking at that. While they're up there, a guy has come to the other nine disciples down below with a problem. He's got a son who has a, a demon. And, and apparently he wanted Jesus to cast out the demon because that's what he says when Jesus asks for an explanation as to what's going on. He says, I, I came, I brought my son to you, to Jesus. But since Jesus isn't there, the nine disciples step in. And as far as demon possessions go, if I'm just going to focus on that for a second, this one does seem pretty bad. It, it makes the kid unable to speak. Uh, the dad says it throws him down on the ground. It causes him to foam in the mouth, grind his teeth, become rigid. It's a pretty, pretty bad case. But, but Jesus isn't there, so the nine try to cast it out. However, as you can see here in verse 18, they can't do it. Not at all. And their inability to cast out the demon has led to an argument now with the scribes who had apparently accompanied the man and his son and maybe a, a, another crowd with them here out into the wilderness to see if Jesus could do it. So this is what Jesus first walks up on, is this argument going on between the disciples and the, and the scribes. And I really wanted to take some time to show you or explain to you why they're arguing I don't have time. If you want to hear a better explanation than what I'm about to give you, come see me later and I'll try to give it to you. But, but it, if I could just boil it down to a sentence, they're arguing about, or most likely arguing about, proper exorcism technique. And I know that seems funny to us, but there's an actual historical reason of why I'm saying that. You just have to trust me or ask me later. That's probably what they're arguing about. Jesus walks up on this. The crowd sees him, Mark said. They're excited now. They run up and greet him. He asks what's going on, and that's the situation, okay? So that's, that's how the scene is, is opened up for us. Second segment is the dialogue, verses 19 through, I think, verse 24 or so here. Jesus' first response to them is, O faithless generation. O faithless generation, he says, How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring the boy to me. And let me... Let me just make a couple of quick observations about this particular statement because I don't want you to hear him the wrong way. Because, number one, when we see the words how long, we tend to read those words as words of, like, exasperation or aggravation, right? Because that's how we would use them. If I'm talking to you and you're doing something, i like, how long am I going to put up with you? How long are you going to be like this? It's, that's a, a statement of aggravation for me. I don't think that's the case here. I think what Jesus is actually trying to express is how little time do I have left to be with you? How little time do I have left to be, to be patient with you, to bear with you? I don't think he's frustrated. I think he's just cognizant of the fact that his days are numbered. And clearly this scene is showing us there's a lot of work left to do with, with these guys that he's been working with. Second, and this is the really important part of this response is when he calls them a faithless generation. 
And the question I would ask you to help you think like I try to think as I'm studying is, who is he talking to here? Who exactly is he referring to? Well, I'll tell you what I think the answer is. I think it's primarily the disciples, the nine. I mean, yes, it's true. It's a general statement, and so it applies to everyone in the scene, the scribes and the dad and, and the crowd that is there. But I think primarily he's, he's really talking to those nine guys that are left, but he's lumping everyone together under this one heading as if maybe, spoiler alert, this is the real problem. Not the demon in this story, but, but their lack of faith. Hold on to that for a moment. They bring the boy near. When the demon sees Jesus, immediately it convulses the boy, causing him to fall on the ground, Mark says, roll around, foam in the mouth. And rather than responding immediately to that situation, which of course is what we would do, we'd be freaking out right now. We'd be like, oh my goodness, look what's happening. You know, Jesus, though, he doesn't, he doesn't do that. He turns to the dad and begins to question him. How long has this been happening? To the boy. And the dad says, from childhood, it's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. This demon has been like after the boy's life, it sounds like. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, just stop for a moment and consider what this man has just said. Do, do you remember back in Mark? Chapter 1, mentioned it a moment ago, mentioned it again. A leper came up to Jesus, a guy who's an outcast in society, who's got a terrible disease, nobody wants to be near him, around him. The leper comes up to Jesus and he asks him a question. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. And at the time, I said to you about that, that particular statement, that it was an amazing statement of faith on behalf of the leper. He's not questioning Jesus' ability to heal him. He, he apparently believes that Jesus can. He's simply questioning Jesus' willingness, which makes complete sense if you're a leper in the first century. Nobody wants to be near you. No one wants to associate with you. So if Jesus doesn't want to be near him, doesn't want to do anything with him, the guy understands that. That's his world. That's where he lives. So he doesn't question Jesus' ability. He questions his willingness. Now look again at this man's statement. <laughs> If you can. Those are his words here. Jesus, if you can do anything. He's questioning Jesus' ability to heal to Jesus' very face. And yet, can I point out the contradiction you see in this man? I mean, here's a guy who has gone through some amount of trouble. I don't know how much, how difficult this was to do to go find Jesus wherever he is out in the wilderness. I mean, he's out in a mountain somewhere, so he's out somewhere in the desert or somewhere away you would think from civilization the way the, the story is read. He's taken the trouble to go bring his demon-possessed son out into the wilderness. He's found Jesus, scribes have followed him, all these people. Why? Why would you bring your boy? Why would you go through all that trouble to, to bring your boy to a guy who you're not even sure can help? So there's this like a little bit of a contradiction in, in, in the man here. He, he wants to find Jesus, yet he's not really sure what Jesus can do. So, you know, what is it, Dad? Do you think he can or can't? See the tension? Now, in his defense, I should say two positive things about this father. Uh, one, he's clearly desperate. I mean, wouldn't you be, parents, if you had a child who you saw was like possessed by a demon who, 
who the demon's trying to kill the child, throwing him into fire, throwing him into water, no one can help. You, maybe, maybe we would be just as desperate as this man to try anything, even if we weren't 100% convinced it was going to work. So I give him credit for that. And number two, I give him credit for being brutally honest. He doesn't put on a false facade before Jesus. He's honest, maybe even to a fault here. <clears throat> Jesus' reply, though, it cracks me up. Jesus says to him, if you can, and, and I, was trying to, uh, I was trying to think of a way to express this in a modern equivalent, so this has not come naturally to me. I'm going to try something, and if this fails, I'm okay with it. Ready? If you can, right, that didn't work at all. You could do that three-snap Zorro thing, right? It's like, if Jesus could do that, if he would have done that, I think that would be about the proper response in this statement. It's funny because in Greek, it's literally the if you can. Like, as to that statement, like, what's wrong with you? It's half statement of offense, half statement of what in the world is wrong with you? Don't you know who I am kind of, kind of thing? And so Jesus instructs and he corrects the man that, that all things are possible for the one who believes. And I'll address that comment more in a few moments. But, man... If there's a part of this story that I love, I, I love this, this is it right here. Again, the man is brutally honest, and he acknowledges the contradiction in his own heart. He cries out, and the word here for cries, it's a very emotional word. You should, you should almost picture the guy yelling in tears as he's falling to his knees before Jesus. He cries out in desperation, I believe, help my unbelief. The man is broken. The man is, is helpless. He is desperate. And he doesn't have perfect faith. And he knows it. And he acknowledges it before Jesus. And he pleads, get this, he pleads not just for his son now, but for his own faith. He pleads that Jesus will help him have the faith he really needs. This is, folks, this is a beautiful beautiful picture of this man's complete and utter helplessness and dependence on Jesus. It's really a beautiful picture of all of our complete and utter helplessness and dependence on Jesus. And whereas Jesus rebuffed the man's first reply, the if you can thing, he, he doesn't rebuff this one. In fact, this leads us to the third segment here, the solution, verses 25 to 27, and this one's really easy. He cast out the demon. You mutant deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him, never enter him again. The spirit cries out, convulses the boy terribly, Mark writes, and as it's coming out, uh, and the boy appears to die. In fact, Mark tells us that most of the people watching this scene said, he's dead. Like, that wasn't helpful. <laughs> you cast out the demon, but now he's dead. But he's not dead. Jesus comes and he takes him by the hand, lifts him up. The boy gets up and is fine. That was easy, right? I mean, what demon's going to stand up to Jesus? Nobody. Jesus is really the God that he claims to be. There's no force of evil that can ever deny him or disobey him. And yet this is the point where the story really gets strange. Because in the other three stories, if, if we were back in one of those stories, this is pretty much where the story would end. Jesus conquered evil. Everything's good. We're done. Let's move on. But this is not the end of this story. Because segment four now is a follow-up section. Here in verses 28 to 29. 
It says, when Jesus had entered the house, and you say, well, what house? I don't know. It doesn't matter. When they get inside, the disciples had a question that they wanted to ask Jesus privately, not in front of the scribes, not in front of the crowd. You get the sense that they're a little embarrassed by the, the situation. And their question is very simple. Why could we not cast it out? <clears throat> now, there's something going on here in, um, in Greek that is not first obvious to us as English readers. It's the emphasis of the sentence. In English, if I want to emphasize a sentence, what do I do? I, I, I change my voice. Why couldn't we cast it out? I would use my voice to emphasize something. Greek doesn't work like that. If they want to emphasize something, they play with the word order. We, why couldn't cast it out? They would, that doesn't work in English because our language is very different than theirs. But that is exactly what is going on in this question. The word that is being emphasized above all the other words is the word we. Why couldn't we do it, Jesus? Why didn't we have the power to cast out this demon? This scene began with the disciples' inability, right, to cast out the demon. And now it's ending with them asking Jesus why that happened. And I kind of feel the need to maybe help you sympathize with them a little bit in this question. Because if you think back to Mark chapter 6, Jesus had explicitly given the disciples authority to cast out demons. Remember this? He was getting ready to send them out. So Mark chapter 6, verse 7, he calls the 12, and he began to send them out two by two. And one of the things he specifically does is he gives them authority over the, the unclean spirits, over the demons. And you jump ahead a few verses to the report of what happens. In verse 13, what happens? They cast out demons. Okay? He gave them authority to do it. They went and did it. And cast out many demons. Anointed many with oil who were sick. He healed them. They had done this before. They had done this before with success. So when this guy comes to the nine and he asked him to cast out the demon and, and they can't, well, it confuses them. Well, why couldn't we do it, Jesus? And Jesus' answer to them is both simple and profound. It is both extremely clear and a little confusing all at the same time. He says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And interestingly, when Matthew records the same exact story, and he gets to that question, why couldn't we cast it out? He, he records a different statement that Jesus said, which Mark didn't. In Matthew 17, 20, he says, or he records Jesus as saying, because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and Nothing will be impossible for you. And you're like, well, which one is it? Did he say this or did he say that? Well, <laughs> I think we're, we're often just not, we treat the scriptures like no one, we wouldn't treat any other piece of literature or conversation where we ever would have with someone. Because if you and I meet for coffee and we spend an hour talking about a parenting problem that you're having, and you go home and your spouse says, so what did you talk about? Well, we talked about parenting. No, 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 we talked for an hour. I said a lot more than the words parenting, right? I, there, was, there was a lot more going on there. But you're just trying to boil down the whole thing to a nugget, to a concept, to an idea, to get across the point. And that's exactly what's going on here. I think perhaps Jesus said a great deal to them in response to their question of why couldn't we cast it out. And both Matthew and Mark are, 
are, are, for the sake of being concise in their storytelling, each choosing one comment, one nugget that they think encapsulates the main point of Jesus' response. For Mark, it's this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So, so what is Jesus saying there? Well, to explain that, let me, let me walk back through the story now a second time. Okay, and that's the quick overview. You know what's happening. Let's walk back through it a second time and try to draw out some of the key points that were made along the way. But first, first, let's remember the context of what is going on in this section of Mark's gospel that we're in right now. For the last two weeks, I've been telling you that what's happening here in the subsection of Mark's gospel is that Mark is showing us some wrong expectations that the disciples had related to who Jesus is, right? And, and in two specific ways. First, they're, they're misunderstanding what it means to say that Jesus is the Messiah. What's that going to entail? What's he going to do? What, all those questions, we've talked about that. But number two, they're also misunderstanding what that's going to mean for them to live their life in this kingdom that he says he's bringing and what that kingdom itself is going to look like. They are expecting glory and power and greatness and authority when class? Oh, come on. When class? Now. Now. They're expecting that all that stuff's going to come now, both for Jesus as the Messiah and, please get this, for themselves as well as his followers. They think all that good stuff is coming now. And so to show us these wrong expectations, Mark is using this cycle here of foretelling and failure and correction. Three specific foretellings of Jesus' death, his suffering, his humiliation, followed by three specific failures to understand that and respond correctly on the part of the disciples, followed by three specific periods of correction and teaching related to those failures. So as you can see here, we're still in that first cycle of foretelling, failure, correction, which means that in order to understand this story correctly as a story that is designed to correct and teach in response to one of their wrong understandings, we need to first go back and remember what that first failure was. And again, I'm going to trust that you guys have been good students and have been listening. What was the first failure class? Who did it? Who? Peter? It was right after Jesus said, listen, I'm going I'm to suffer I'm going to be rejected by the elders. I'm going to die. Peter pulls him aside. No, no, you're not, Jesus. None of those things are going to happen to you. You're not supposed to go through that stuff. You're, you're supposed to experience glory, not suffering. Power, not weakness. In this, in this first failure cycle, you get the sense that the disciples can't quite figure out how the concepts of glory and suffering, power and weakness fit together. And so Jesus shows it to them, right? In the transfiguration story, Jesus is showing them how the concepts of glory and suffering will come together in him and in his plan. And so as he stands there on the mountaintop in all his heavenly glory with Moses and Elijah, what's he talking about? His departure, his suffering, his rejection, his death. And in doing so, he's showing them his greatest glory is actually going to come through his suffering. That those ideas are not antithetical. That the disciples are confused by that. Both for Jesus and also for themselves. 
And folks, that's what we're actually seeing here in this story. Think back to what Mark has been showing us here. How did the story begin? Well, it began with the disciples' inability or lack of power to cast out a demon. They had done this before, now they can't. Why? So Jesus walks up, and what does he call them? He calls them a faithless generation, a generation that is lacking faith. And we need to stop and just consider our own understanding of what this word faith means. Because I don't know if you know this, but you have a dictionary in the back of your head. It's called a Modern American Church Dictionary. And in that dictionary, you have defined certain church words or religious words. And for many of us, when we hear the word faith, we instantly think it is synonymous with another word, and that word is belief. We just need to believe. That's what faith is. It's, it's belief. Can I tell you that the New Testament word for faith is much bigger, much, much bigger than the word belief? Yes, it includes belief, believing certain things to be true about Jesus, about the fact that he's, he's the Son of God and that he lived a sinless life and that he died and rose again. It includes that, but I would also point out that up to this point in Mark's gospel, the people who believe the most are the demons. And it's not helping them very much to believe. James will say the same thing later in his letter. You believe in God? That's great. The demons believe too, and they tremble. Like It doesn't help just to believe, to assume or, or to accept that certain things are true. Believing is a part of it, but it's more than that. Because in, in the New Testament, the word for faith that's being used here, it's about trust. It's about putting all your hope in something. Becoming completely, completely dependent on Jesus for everything. That not only do you accept the facts that are stated about him in the scriptures, but you're so bought in that if you're wrong, you've got no other hope. It's not like putting a few eggs in this basket, but we want to diversify, we'll put a few eggs over here too. Just in case I'm wrong about Jesus, I've got this one here as a backup. The New Testament concept of faith is about being all in on Jesus alone. You trust him or you don't. You depend on him or you don't. It's that simple. And so in this case here, it's about trust and dependency in Jesus and Jesus alone. And none of the people in this story are exercising that kind of faith. One that is completely all in on Jesus. I mean, just start with the dad. On the one hand, he believes enough about Jesus to come to find him and bring his son to him. But on the other hand, he's not all in. I mean, if you can, Jesus, I've got like a wisp of a hope that maybe you can help. I'm desperate. So if you can, please, please try to, try to help me. And that's why Jesus, Jesus calls him out. What do you mean, if you can? But, but notice now that next statement. All things are possible for the one who believes. Or if I could say it more literally, all things are possible for the one who faiths. The one who trusts the one who is all in, putting everything on me and what I'm saying to you. Our translators use the word belief here, but I almost wish they wouldn't, even though it doesn't sound right in, in English. I almost wish they would just say faiths. All things are possible for the one who faiths. The man then cries out, literally, I faith, help my unfaith. I'm trusting you, Jesus. I'm depending on you, but I am clearly not trusting you and not depending on you. It's as if he's blind, but he can see a little. 
Does that sound familiar? He's brutally honest. And Jesus is okay with that because the reality is here. Watch this, please. Watch this. The reality is here that this man's desperate plea for help and trusting in and depending on Jesus is his act of trusting and depending on Jesus. Him falling to his knees, crying out, Jesus, help my unbelief. It doesn't get any more raw or real than that. I can't do it. I'm at the end of myself. I'm acknowledging that I am completely dependent on you, not just for the healing of my son, even for my own faith. And he has nothing. If Jesus doesn't help him, he will continue to have nothing. And this is why Jesus now acts and the demon is gone. The man has become completely dependent on Jesus. Now, now, come back to the disciples' final question. When they get to the house, they say, well, why couldn't we cast it out? And as I told you already, the emphasis here is on the word we. Why, why didn't they have the power? And, and the question is worded in such a way as to cause us to see that they were under the impression that they had the authority and power to do this. Which, of course, is why they couldn't. It was never their power. It had never been their power. It was Jesus' power. Back in Mark 6, remember, he is the one who is giving them the authority. Whose authority? His authority. He's delegating it to them. At some point along the way, they've forgotten this. They now seem to think that the power and the authority to, is theirs by default, perhaps, I think, because of the fact that they're following the Messiah. Well, it's the Messiah. The kingdom's come. I should be able to do all this stuff. Oh, yeah. Just like Jesus has all this great power, we will too. Perhaps now you can see the real meaning of Jesus' response, right? Both here in Mark as well as in Matthew. You know, what's, what's the common emphasis of both passages? Well, he's emphasizing their need to faith. Their need to put all of their trust, all of their dependence, all of their hope, not in themselves, but in God and God alone. He tells them that what they needed to do here was to pray. Well, what is prayer? What, what is prayer at its core? Well, prayer at its core, at its essence, is an acknowledgement of our weakness. Prayer at its core is an acknowledgement of our inability to do anything. He's basically telling them here that they couldn't do it apart from being dependent on God. And yet the funny thing is, if, if they had, had embraced their weakness, if they had embraced their, their need of, of God's help, they would have found great, great power. Just like they misunderstood how glory and suffering would work together in the person and plan of Jesus the Messiah, they misunderstood how power and weakness would work together in this kingdom that Jesus was bringing. Mountains could be moved, Jesus said, if they were completely and utterly dependent on God. Uh, not by them, them, of course, by God. He can do anything. They could experience God's strength if they would simply embrace their own weakness and, and, and rely on the Father. So just as glory and suffering are not antithetical for Jesus, guess what? Power and weakness are not antithetical for those who rely on him. We, we struggle with the same thing, don't we? I mean, can I ask you a question? This has been on my mind now for two months. 
do you really believe, do you really believe that prayer is the most powerful thing you could do in any given situation or context? Thank you for your honesty. <laughs> I, I mean, let's just think about this. It, <clears throat> some of you are probably, oh no, he's going to talk about prayer. It's kind of like when you go to the dentist and they're like, did you floss? <laughs> and you're like, no, I didn't. You don't want to say it, but you have to be honest because they know it. You can't like lie about that one. They're seeing it. And you know at the end they're going to tell you you need to floss more and you're going to either say, sure, I'll do it, knowing full well you won't. Or you will try only in a few days later to kind of give up and go back to your old ways. A lot of us, when we, when we start to think about prayer, we hear someone talking about prayer, we kind of feel the same way. It's like, oh, I know I should, but I don't. Okay, I'm, uh, I'm going to do it. No, you're not. You know it. Or you're going to do it, you're going to try for a couple days and it's going to fall apart. I, I, don't, I don't want you to think of it that way. I'm just asking the question, why don't we? Why don't we? Why do we struggle with prayer like that? May I suggest that if we were honest with ourselves and with each other, it's because we really don't think we need it. I mean, that's kind of where I've been thinking about my own heart. I think that like the disciples, every one of us in this room has an exalted view of our own ability and power. And, and you could name the area and it would be true. We don't pray because we don't think we need it. And to prove that, let's just be brutally honest about the times when we do actually sincerely pray. I'm not talking about the little trinket prayers that we think are prayer I'm talking about real, sincere, desperate prayer. When are the times we actually give ourselves to it with our whole heart? It's when things are really bad. Big and bad, right? It's when someone is about to die or, or some job or livelihood is in danger. Someone we love is on the brink of disaster for some reason. It's shameful to say that, that those of us in here who say we're completely dependent on Jesus for salvation, who have no hope in anything else, right? We, we would sing that and share that and say that. We don't live that. You went through an entire week without once really falling on your knees, desperately pleading for God to help you at all, outside of a token thing at a meal or before you go to bed. We think we've got this life. We think we're good. We tell ourselves we're powerful enough and capable enough to do all the things that we have in our life. No wonder we're not. The irony is, is that in God's kingdom, great power, great power, power is available to those who are willing to embrace their own great weakness. And there is no better litmus test for this. If you want to know how you're doing on that point, there's no better litmus test here than prayer. None. Is your marriage struggling? You're trying to fix it, nothing's helping, and you're like, why can't we fix this? Why can't we make this right? Well, do you really believe that the most powerful thing you could do for your marriage is to fall on your knees and plead with God to help you. You're still trying to like read the books and follow the gurus. and What's really the most powerful thing you could do for your marriage? You want to grow spiritually. You want to, you want to have victory over sin and you try and you, you try to be faithful reading your Bible and you try to say no and oh, but you keep failing and it doesn't work. Do you really believe that the most powerful thing you could do to become more like Jesus, to say no to sin and have victory over it, is to spend hours pleading with God for his help to make you like his son? Do you really think that's the best way you can accomplish that? You've been trying to do something, achieve something, it's not working, you keep doing everything right. It's, do you really believe that the most powerful thing you could do is to to beg your heavenly Father 
to not only give you what's best, but to help you trust him that that really is what's best. I'm talking about desperate pleading. I think sadly for most of us in here, the answer to these questions is no. We don't really believe that the most powerful thing we could do in any given situation or context is to pray. No, we need to strategize. We need to work. We need to change ourselves. We need to change the other person. We need to intervene personally. We need to do something. Some of those steps may be needed, mind you. (laughs) I'm telling you this morning that none of these things, none of them, are more powerful than sincere, desperate, completely dependent prayer pleading with God. Do do, do you really believe that? You say, Stacy, I don't. I'm not there. I mean, you're saying this and the Spirit is convicting my heart because... That's me. I, 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 don't, I don't really believe it. I think I can do all this stuff on my own. What, what do I do? May I just commend in closing the Father's words to you as an example of where to begin? Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. The man began by just honestly pleading for his own faith. And we should too. If, if I could have my way this morning, if I, and I've been praying this this week, it would be that you go home, you, everyone. Some of you I could pray for by name or face, and others I've never seen before this morning. But I've been praying for this crowd that would gather this morning to go out of here recognizing you aren't enough. You're not enough. You can't do it on your own. And if God doesn't help you, you have nothing. But we have a great and powerful Father who's there. He's waiting. He's made a way for you to come before him by sacrificing his own son. What's stopping us? Why are we in his throne room pleading before him? He's not against us now. He's forgiven us of our sins. What's stopping us? Our own pride. And so I'm going to pray for us now. I'm going to confess that pride to the Father on all of our behalfs. And I want you, as you bow your head with me here in just a second, to do the same. And we're going to pray that God will do a work here at Cornerstone to cause us as his people to desperately need him above everything. Will you bow your heads with me just for a moment? Father, I come as a representative of this room this morning. Confessing my pride and confessing all of our pride, we think we can do this. We think we're strong enough and capable enough and powerful enough to do all the things in our life from our marriages and our children and living for you and and, and jobs and decisions. It doesn't, we are so full of ourselves that we live day by day not falling on our knees. and We're sorry, Jesus. We're so sorry. Father, forgive us. You have made it so abundantly clear that in your kingdom, power comes through weakness. Glory comes through suffering. May we become a people who embrace our weakness, who, who find that there's nothing better we could do in a situation than to gather and pray or to pray on our own, to beg and plead with you. 
We can't even manufacture that, though, Lord, if you don't come and work, if you don't change our hearts, if you don't make us dependent on you, if you don't help our unfaith, then we will be like the Father, helpless and broken with no course of, of, of having anything changed. But we know that you are the God who has loved us so much. You've made us your own children. You've adopted us as sons and daughters. And, and if you didn't withhold your own son from us, you won't withhold anything. And so please, Father, on behalf of this church, on behalf of the people in this room, I beg you to pour out your spirit on us and make us dependent on you. Help us not to avoid our weakness. Help us to embrace it. Send us to our knees as individuals, as couples, as families, and as a church body, desperately seeking you in everything. Father, thank you for your word. It is powerful. It changes our hearts and convicts us. We desperately need it. And so we give this time to you and ask your spirit to work. In Jesus' name, 